Today's Bible reading is from uh, Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 to 16. Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary of the Lord. The sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favour on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard. And do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Good morning, Riverbank. Really nice to be with you. Uh, If I haven't met you before, I'm Ruben. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Come say hi afterwards. I'd love to get to know you better. Uh, This morning, we're continuing in our uh, sermon series through the book of Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. Uh, We've been in this book for a couple of weeks now. We've been looking at how God is kind of having a a Q&A with his people. They're in this discussion where... God says things, and they ask questions, and they go back and forth. And, and today, God brings up the topic of marriage. Now, I think it's fair to say that in Australian society today, we're not talking about marriage all that much anymore. Uh, I think we find ourselves talking more about love than marriage. There was a time when romantic love and marriage were basically one and the same thing, right? But but it's not like that today. Uh, I was chatting to someone recently and he said, look, I I don't need a certificate to prove that I love her. And you know, if things go wrong in the relationship, if we stop loving each other, I don't see how that piece of paper is going to change anything. Now, now no one's debating whether love is a good thing, right? I mean, we all want it, we all need it, we all agree that we need love in order to be happy. The question is, does it matter whether romantic love happens in the context of marriage or not? What type of soil provides the perfect conditions for love to grow? In what context is love most likely to blossom? And more and more in Australia, I think we're answering that question by saying, well, love needs to be free. You know, if it has boundaries on it, if it restricts who you can love or or insists that you stay with that person 
for your whole life, then we're actually stifling the, the happiness and the freedom, the emotions of true love, and we, and we end up hurting people. And there's a lot to like about that view of love, isn't there? Love is love, so let it be free. It seems logical enough. You know love when you feel it. To go against that would be to make yourself miserable, and, and well, that's clearly not a good way to live. But every scientist will tell you that it's important to carefully examine a, a new drug or a new medical treatment before you recommend it to patients. Uh, you need to make sure that it will deliver the desired results and that it won't come with any unforeseen, unpleasant side effects. And, and so before we throw marriage in the recycling bin as a society and upgrade to a more modern definition of love, well, let's make sure that it can deliver on its promises. Remember, we all want to arrive at the same destination, don't we? We all want a place of love and intimacy and safety, a place where women are valued and not mistreated, a place where children can thrive. The question is, which soil will provide the perfect conditions for love like that to grow? That's the question. And God actually has a lot to say about that in the Bible. In fact, that's not really surprising, because God is the expert in love. In fact, He's the God who is love and who gives love. And in our passage today, God presents a view of love and marriage that is quite different to how Australians tend to think today. Because God says the context in which love grows is not actually total freedom to love whoever, whenever, but commitment and godliness. The commitment of one man and one woman in marriage, united for life, with God at the center. Now, that might sound a bit naive and old-fashioned to some of us. It might even sound restrictive and trapping. Uh, it might even sound hurtful or dangerous. But before we reach our conclusions, let's, let's try and see what God is saying from His perspective. Let's hear what He has to say about marriage and consider whether just maybe doing marriage God's way would be a wonderful thing that would lead to flourishing for us as individuals and as families, as a church, and as a whole society. So we're looking at Malachi chapter 2. Uh, crack it open if you haven't already. Chapter 2, verses 10 to 16. And we're going to start by looking at God's good plan for marriage. And then we're going to see two ways in which we often mess up that good plan. Uh, so, God's good plan for marriage, and then two ways that we often mess that plan up. First, God's good plan for marriage. What is marriage? Why did God create it? Well, see how it starts there in verse 10. God begins by saying, Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? This is where our understanding of marriage begins. It begins with God. God walks us back right to the start of the Bible when He created everything. And our God is the creator of beautiful things. Best of all, people who love Him and love each other. He's also the creator and father of, of His special people, the nation of Israel. They're a family and God is their father. 
And he's got a great plan for this family. They're going to go out into the world and bless it. So, why would God begin talking about marriage by saying in verse 10, Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Well, he is reminding us that marriage is grounded in himself. He's reminding us that he made this world to be a place where people love him and love each other. And he's reminding us that even after we fell terribly into sin, God is saving people, a family, and he's calling them back to himself, back to live according to his good and wise plan. And then, and then in verse 15, have a look at verse 15, God's, God builds on these ideas even more. Have a look at what he says to married couples. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. Now, that's a difficult verse to translate, but it's pretty clear that it's pointing us back to Genesis 2, when God created the first Marriage. You remember he, he made Eve to be this perfect companion and helper for Adam, and then he, he brought them together, joined them in a union, two becoming one. And actually, in verse 14 of our passage, God says that he's the witness at every marriage. Uh, so when I stood up the front there and said my vows to Shan, God was right next to me. And he heard when I said, for better or worse, in sickness and in health till death do us part. He heard that and he's, he's holding me accountable to that. God refers to marriage as a covenant, a legally binding commitment of love. It's meant to be this inseparable bond, way stronger than liquid nails or superglue. So, so there you go, that, that's, that's a little glimpse of what marriage is. But, but why? Why did God create marriage? What's its purpose? Well, have a look there again in verse 14. God talks about your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Partner, this is, this is a partnership, this is teamwork, this is friendship, companionship. This is two very different people who actually are designed by God to fit together like puzzle pieces, each providing what the other lacks, each helping the other, leaning on each other. And in verse 15, God reminds us it's supposed to be a union of body and spirit. So they're not just united physically, but they're united spiritually, united in their love for God and helping each other fulfill their purpose to love God and serve Him. That's purpose number one for marriage. It's, it's a partnership. Uh, but then as they do this, have a look in verse 15, there's also another purpose there. It goes on to say, and what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. We chatted to the kids about that before, being godly kids. How is our creator God going to fill and bless this beautiful earth? Uh, well, he's going to do it through marriage. I don't think I need to stand up here and spell out the details of how men and women are very well designed to procreate, right? But, but then notice, God particularly wants his offspring to be godly. So he's, he's planning to create and produce more and more little worshippers who will go out into the world and fill it with his praise. And again, marriage is the perfect way for that to happen, isn't it? Because it's in the home with Christian parents, in this stable, committed, loving environment 
that kids are best raised to love the Lord. So there you have it. A whirlwind tour. What is God's plan for marriage? Well, it starts with a faithful, loving God. He creates men and women, and then he, he designs marriage as a way of bringing them together in a lifelong, exclusive union. Uh, a union of body and spirit where God's at the center for the purpose of, of a partnership and for the purpose of godly offspring so that the whole world is built up and the gospel is spread until the whole world sees God's love. Now, I, I don't know about you, maybe, maybe for some of us that's a really new way of thinking about marriage. But I hope it gives us a glimpse of why marriage might actually be a really good thing. That that relationship of commitment and godliness might be the perfect place for love to grow. A, a place of safety, a place of companionship, a place where our children can thrive, a place where the world is blessed. Well, that's all very nice, but now the rubber hits the road because God wants us to realize that His plan for marriage is not just one good option amongst many, but actually it is the way that these relationships were meant to be. And then we see in our passage that when we mess up God's plan for marriage, the, the consequences are, are devastating. Which, which brings us to our second point. We've looked at God's good plan for marriage, but, but now we need to dig a little deeper into our text. And we need to look at two ways in which we often mess up God's good plan. So have a look there. The first way that we mess up, it's there in verse 11. Read it with me. Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Here it is. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. Well, what's, what's going on here? Is God being racist? Is he saying, oh, I want this pure Jewish bloodline and, and no foreigners to be married into it? No, not at all. Remember, God made all people. He loves all people. And there's lots of stories in the Bible where People from other nations were welcomed into the Israelite community. We, we, um, we saw one of those earlier this year, didn't we? Do you remember Ruth the Moabite who marries Boaz? So what is the issue in verse 11? It's that Israelite men are marrying women who worship a foreign god. It's nothing to do with their blood, it's their religion. Which oh, doesn't really seem like a big deal at the time, does it? I mean, you find someone who's open-minded about your faith and they, they're happy enough for you to go along to church on Sunday. And so you begin to tell yourself, this relationship, it's not really going to affect my devotion to God. It's the same in our passage. That the men try to tell themselves their wife's idol worship won't affect their loyalty to God. In verse 12, we see that they're still rocking up to the temple with their offerings, pretending like nothing's wrong. But, but does it actually work? Is this a legitimate option for a single Christian who's struggling to find a Christian partner? Well, in his, in his gracious desire to protect us, God warns us in this passage. He warns us there are really significant consequences when a believer chooses to marry an unbeliever. 
Okay, the first one. Remember God's plan for marriage in verse 15? The couple is meant to be united, not just physically, same house, same money, but spiritually. But what, what happens then if one spouse is a believer and the other isn't? Uh, let, let me read a quote from a, a minister called Ian Duguid. He's got much more pastoral experience than me. He says this about marriage. Marriage is intended to be much more than merely having someone to come home to and sit beside the fire with at night. Marriage is intended to be a spiritual union in which we share the deepest longings and aspirations of our hearts with our spouse. It is supposed to be a context in which we share our spiritual struggles and pray with and for one another. It involves sharpening one another, rebuking one another when necessary, edifying one another spiritually, and encouraging one another in Christ. It is designed to be a deep and lasting friendship in which a couple serve the Lord together, building one another up in their mutual faith. And then Ian Duguid says this, a Christian cannot possibly connect on the deepest level of the soul with someone who doesn't share life in Christ there will be a profound area of existence that is permanently shut off from that person. End quote. So, so if you're single and you're a Christian and you're eager to find a spouse, I wonder, I wonder what you think about this. I wonder where on your wish list faith comes. Is it, is it at the top? And not just someone who says, yeah, yeah, no, I'm a Christian. Yep. But someone who has God at the center of their life. Well, this is the first big consequence. It, it's the loss of spiritual union. The second consequence is also there in verse 15. God desires, remember, godly offspring. Sometimes it's not till children are born that we realize how difficult things are going to be. And then all of a sudden we're asking, huh, which God are they going to serve? Mum's God or dad's God? Or, or a dangerous mix of both? Now, of course, our gracious and our powerful God can and does do amazing things with the kids who have one parent as a believer. Absolutely. But the question here is, why would anyone deliberately choose that difficult situation. There's a third consequence too. It's there at the end of verse 10. Have a look there at the end of verse 10. Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to who? To one another. I was struck by that. Christians who choose to marry non-Christians, they're actually being unfaithful to the covenant community which for us today is the church. Marriages and families are actually the core of every church. Little family makes up the big family. But what happens when those little families, those marriages, are no longer wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord? Well, it actually causes the church to suffer. You know, we, we lack unity and we lack direction and we become ineffective in evangelism and, and then future generations may not grow up loving the Lord I mean, you look around Australian churches and you wonder why so many of them are left with 12 grey heads. You have to wonder whether God is showing us part of the problem right here. 
And then there's one more consequence that comes when believers marry unbelievers. It, it damages our relationship with God. Verse 11, the, the sanctuary the Lord loves has been desecrated. It's probably a reference there to the temple. We see it a bit more clearly in verses 12 and 13, where people come and they're putting on a show of still worshipping God, still expecting God to bless them. But God's not fooled. He can see what's happening in private that they're drifting from Him, that their allegiance is now somewhere else. You know, you know private sin does always, it always damages our relationship with God. And singing and praying loudly in church on Sunday doesn't make up for that. So there we go. Straying from God's good plan for marriage has enormous consequences for our relationship with us by us, for any children that God might bless us with, for, for the church community, and, and for our personal relationship with God. So it's no wonder that God's advice to Christians today is the same, really, as it was then. Feel free to marry people from any race or culture, but, but, but make sure they belong to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, it warns about believers being yoked to unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 7.39 says to a Christian widow, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. Now, we should note at this point that Paul has different advice in 1 Corinthians 7 for someone who becomes a Christian after they've already been married. Uh, and he tells them to actually stay married to their unbelieving spouse, if they're willing, and to seek to win them to Christ. But for, but for Christians who are choosing a marriage partner, God's, God's word is clear. They must belong to the Lord. Makes, makes really good sense. That, that's marriage problem number one, the first way we mess up the plan. Unfortunately, we're not through the worst of it yet, though. Because in verses 14 to 16, it, it gets uglier. We discover that these men are divorcing their first wives in order to marry these other women. Uh, that's just a tragic example of how sin snowballs in our lives, isn't it? How one leads to another. We're not told why they're leaving their first wives for these other women. Uh, we might assume they fell in love, uh, or maybe there was conflict in their first marriage. But back then, it, it could actually have been about just getting more wealth and power, because a marriage back then was a, a way of making connections for, for political or financial gain. Whatever, whatever the reason was, God is angry. Because in verse 14, they're being unfaithful. They're, they're tearing apart the marriage that God created and witnessed. And then we get these striking words in verse 16. God says that this man does violence to the one he should protect. The husband especially in that society, was meant to protect and provide for his wife and kids, spiritually, physically, financially, socially. And now, well, you just have these vulnerable women and children being abandoned and just left to struggle on their own. And if you've experienced the hurt and the betrayal of, of someone who's left you, then, you, then you'll know this pain firsthand. 
and I hope you'll find comfort in knowing that God, God is on your side and He hasn't forgotten you. He, he sees your hurt and, and your mistreatment and your pain and He cares. So how does this passage in Malachi 2 fit with what the rest of the Bible says about divorce? Well, we could go into this in a lot of detail, but we don't have time now. In a, in a way, the whole Bible's teaching on divorce is, is pretty simple. Um, di- divorce is never the good, right end for a marriage. It's always tragic. It's always painful. But the Bible does also recognize that it's complex. It's simple. It's also complex. Sometimes because of our hard and sinful hearts, the, the pieces just can't be glued back together. Sometimes divorce is the least of the bad options, I guess you could say. When is this the case? Uh, in Matthew 19, Jesus allows that a marriage may end in cases of sexual immorality. And in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul allows divorce if you become a Christian and then your unbelieving spouse uh, wants to leave the marriage. And there are also circumstances, I think, where in cases of abuse, divorce does seem to be the only viable option, the least of the bad options. Uh, Even here in Malachi 2, we see, don't we, that God is strongly opposed to the mistreatment of women and children. Well, we have looked at God's good plan for marriage. And we've looked at two ways that we can easily mess that plan up. We can marry someone who doesn't love the Lord. And we can divorce without good reason. And for some of us, I know this this passage will bring up hurt and pain and guilt. We all know that those happy wedding days don't always turn out how we hoped. And we might wish that we didn't have to talk about this stuff today. It's hard. But our loving Father is doing it for a good reason. He wants to guide us, to help us, to give us hope. So whatever you're going through, whether you're the one who has sinned and you carry that guilt, or you're the one who's been sinned against and you carry the scars, or your spouse has died and you miss them terribly, or you find yourself in a marriage that is just so much harder than you ever thought it could be, or you're the child of parents who had a difficult marriage, or you're married and and you're longing for kids that you can't have, or you long for marriage but you're still single, or you fear you may be single for the rest of your life because of unwanted same-sex attraction. Whatever you're going through, please hear this good news. God is always faithful. God is our loving Father. All, all of us in some way or other are guilty of being faithless to God and to one another. But in Jesus, we enter into the ultimate marriage, the marriage that all other marriages are meant to point to. I'm talking about God, the Father of the bride, who marries us to His Son. I'm talking about the loving union of Jesus Christ with His people. 
where all our failures are forgiven, where our deepest needs are met, where we live in a relationship of love and faithfulness forever. What, what does that mean for us right now? Well, it means that you can cry out to God with your sin and your pain, and you will find that He understands and He has compassion. Through Jesus and His death on the cross, there is forgiveness for all the ways that you have messed up God's plan for marriage. No matter how bad, no matter how much the consequences of those actions still hurt, through Jesus there's comfort comfort for those who've been hurt and mistreated. Through Jesus there is strength for difficult days and difficult seasons. Through Jesus there is the Holy Spirit's power to change to bring hope. You know, there are, there are many Australians in society today, I think, who feel like marriage has become something old-fashioned, something unnecessary. But friends, God tells us it is actually a beautiful gift from Him. And it's something we should treasure. So God gives us this command at the end of verse 15. Have a look there. He says, So be on your guard. Be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. And then he repeats it at the end of verse 16. This is clearly like the big takeaway he wants us to get. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. We're going to finish here uh, with just a few practical takeaways. What, what does this mean for us? Well, for those who are married, we need to guard our marriages and our hearts with great care. Do, do you pray for your marriage and your spouse and yourself every day? Are, are you investing in your marriage to make it the best it can be? Or are you just kind of hoping that eh, it'll be fine? God assumes here, I think, that marriage requires ongoing effort, which doesn't really surprise us, does it? With Satan prowling in the world full of temptations and our own sinful desires within us, Jesus said that adultery starts in our hearts, in our minds. And when things get hard, and, and every marriage will find that things get hard at some point or other, we, we should seek help. Perhaps from some trusted friends, perhaps from a church leader, perhaps from a counsellor. There is no shame in this. In fact, I think it's the opposite. It's a way of honouring God and His plans for marriage, isn't it? And saying, I'm not going to quit. I'm going to work on this. Okay, what about for those of us who are single? Well, you can guard yourself against unfaithfulness by being wise and godly in who you date and marry. If the key to a strong marriage is a spiritual union where, where you're centered around God, then put that at the top of your wish list. And, and don't compromise. Trust God on that one. Someone wise once said to me, uh, focus less on finding the right person and more on becoming the right person. I, I found that very helpful. Become a godly, mature Christian. And then whether God does plan for you to get married one day or not, you will find everything you need in Him. For all, for all of us at Riverbank, let's become a church community that shows God's faithfulness and love to each other 
in all of this. Coming alongside those who are struggling in marriages. Showing compassion to those who have made mistakes. Being humble and open about how hard it can be so that we actually have an opportunity to carry each other's burdens. And as we do that, I have no doubt that we will be a bright light in the world. Is, is marriage outdated and unnecessary? We have a chance to show the people around us that a godly, committed marriage is actually the best place for love to grow and flourish. Let's pray now. Please pray with me. God, we praise you for being faithful and loving and designing something as beautiful as marriage. Lord, we see the mess, the distortions, the pain that we often bring in marriages all around us, but we don't want that to take away from what you have planned it to be, Lord. And through the Holy Spirit's power and the forgiveness and the strength of Jesus Christ, what it, what it could be in our lives, even though two sinners married to each other always brings its struggles. Father, for every married couple here today, we pray that you would strengthen their marriage. We pray that they would guard it with great effort because it's something that they treasure We pray for any marriage here that is struggling, as marriages often do. We pray that they would receive the help they need, that they would know your strength and the support and love of this church community, and Lord, that you would lead them through these difficult seasons, that through it all they might grow closer together and learn to rely on you more and more. Father, you know there are also many here who have been hurt by marriages ending. We pray for your comfort, for your healing, for your forgiveness, for strength. We thank you that this world is not all there is. We thank you that this life is but a blip and that eternity lies before us with the ultimate marriage, the marriage that we're longing for when we'll be with Jesus, our bridegroom, forever and all our tears are gone, and all our guilt is forgotten, and we're with you forever. For those, Lord, here who are single and long for marriage, I pray that they might be able to trust your goodwill for them. They wouldn't stray from your good plan and their efforts to make it happen. Lord, may they commit themselves to you, to holiness, trusting that every good, things, every good thing comes from you in your timing. Father, we thank you for marriage. We pray that you would help us to treasure and guard it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.